The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. In the pre-dawn of the internet, at the cusp of its death grip on humanity, a terrified human race looked to those responsible and asked, what the fuck is this? What happens now? Are all the machines going to start talking to each other? Isn't that the movie Maximum Overdrive? Shit! Isn't this how Skynet got started? Holy shit! Terminator's going to be real? I don't want to be terminated. I don't want to die by a fucking Terminator. Amid the chaos, a man stepped forward. To calm the masses, to ease the collective anxiety about what the future might hold. That man was Billford S. Preston Gates Esquire, a.k.a. Windows 4-point bill, a.k.a. the Microsoft man, butcher of Bakersfield's robot enabler. That last one got away from me a little bit. And if you got the last reference, welcome. You're going to be treated as a god here. Join me as I explore the techno-clairvoyant side of Bill Gates circa 1995. Countdown for blast off. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. Welcome to Ellen Reed's Book a Week, the only podcast in the world that freaked out about the guy who was tried at the Oscars. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. That tagline was uh, was made using my phone's word autofill thing, so there you go, that's fun. This time around, a book written by the most important person on planet Earth, post-Jesus and uh, Buddha and Muhammad times. Bill, I'm glad Steve Jobs is dead so I can be the one True ruler, tech god, Gates. What's the book about? It's about a man who now earns roughly $4 billion a year, which, if broken down into terms that will have you drawing up sweet failure tears like water from a well, means he earns $10,959,000 per day. Yeah, per day. Millions. He wins the fucking lottery every day single day. Still can't wrap your head around that? I <laughs> know, it's hard. How about, uh, he earns $456,625 an hour. So if, you know, if he were to sit and watch an episode of Friends, he would earn enough to buy a very nice house or two or a house and a, and a, a great car. Still, Still weird about how much he earns? Not sure you can get your... He earns $7,160 a minute. I don't even... A fucking minute. A minute? No. No? No? Still not getting it? $127 per second. In the time it takes him to cut a wet fart, Bill Gates makes more than a person earning $15 an hour. For a full eight-hour day. Motherfucker. Well, before I piss myself and everyone else off uh, even more, it's it's not about him earning more money than God. No, it's about what he, the God of capitalism, 
predicted what would happen with the internet. See, way back in the not-too-long-ago past, there existed a time called the 1990s. It was a reckless time of hairspray, moose, 20-something-year-old actors playing high school students that were fucking each other and, and using moose, and other groups of 20-somethings led by a 30-something that were fucking everyone in their apartment complex while also using moose. Confused? Blame Aaron Spelling. Okay. Uh, yeah, there were riots and a couple of wars, lots of gang violence, a crack epidemic, and, uh, and denim overalls. Like a ridiculous amount of denim overalls. It was also during this time of purposeful bedhead and gangster rapping that a once betrodden race of men took a few steps out of their parents' basements into the light of a world primed and ready for computer-driven gadgetry and wonderment. Those fringe-dwelling outcasts from society would become the Silicon Valley industrial titans of tomorrow. Those jittery, sun-deprived men that would lead mankind into a new age. The pallid, skin, the pallid skinned sweater vest wearers were called nerds. And the age they would shape and define would be called the, the information, information age. age. It's, a, it's a rarefied event when something so momentous cleaves history in two. I wasn't alive when the phone, the car, or the electric light was invented, so I don't know what it was like before those things. I was born in a post-phone invention world. The same goes for the other stuff. I, like almost every uh, human being currently residing on Earth, grew up in a world filled with robo-calling, traffic jams, and cities that never sleep. So, it's impossible for us to think of how life was without them, or, or how it would function in their absence. I was here for the internet, though. From its first BBS baby steps, to its AOL gated access crawling, to its <laughs> Mozilla grade school, and, uh, and the ICQ chatting through junior high. Now, we're in the hormone-filled, rebellious Twitter, fuck you, I say what I want, slash everything can be warped to include titties, dicks, and Hitler, teenage phase of, uh, of the internet. <sighs> it's hard to imagine a world without it. And now, I'm a... Back in my day, dickhead. I'm one of the people that lived in the world without it. The world was cleft in twain, and I was here for the cleaving. What a bizarre time to be alive. Though, good one. I can't imagine being someone who helped the fucking thing along, though. It, it seems like it would be a mixed blessing. This whirling mix of technological uncertainty, being on the inside track, and being able to see what's coming down the pike, too. It's inevitable as one of its facilitators, that you would be someone that's turned to for answers and guidance. This is where this book comes in. This is Bill, the Windows PC you're using. You're fucking welcome, Gates. This is his attempt to say, okay, folks, here's what I think is going to happen. How does he fare? Well, it helps to have some context before we talk about that. It really does. Who is this Bill Gates prick? earning $4 billion. And how did he help us get here into this wonderfully fucked up codependent relationship with the internet? Is, is it his fault? We're all screaming into the void for likes and, and keyboard warrior anonymity and Y-list YouTube stars? Well, maybe a little. First, what I'll attempt to do is to give a bit of uh, 
Context. So a history of the computer, uh, the internet, and Bill, uh, at least, until they meet up at the publishing of this book. Just so you know, what's what's what when we get there, you know. Then, then we'll see how far off the mark or on the mark old techno-psychic Gates was. So computers, that, that wonderful invention we've come to count on for our daily dopamine-like-slash-upvote fix and depend on for self-esteem, identity, and meaning. But where did it all begin? And more importantly, how many followers did it have back then? As we all know, a person's follower account is the only currency worth a shit on the internet nowadays. Speaking of which, if you enjoy this episode, follow it on all the social media things and or, you know, send me a message at uh, eltonreadsbookaweek at gmail.com. And uh, if you really dig it a lot and want to play a part in building its mythos, you can contribute to it on its Patreon page and slash or the Elton Reads a Book a Week anchor.fm page. And uh, rating and reviewing helps too. That's it. Okay. Okay. Enough pandering to the listener, Elton. Okay, moving on. Look, the history of computers goes back over 2,000 years to the time of dinosaurs and the fear that a bath would wash your soul away. The birth of the abacus, a wooden rack holding two horizontal wires with beads strung on them, is said to be the first inklings of a device built to help compute. You know, things. Things. Like how many times you were punched by people telling you to put the fucking abacus away. We're fighting dinosaurs for food and survival here, motherfucker. After beating back the dinosaurs, uh, Blaise Pascal, who is usually credited for building the first digital computer, put together a device in 1642. It added numbers, entered with dials, and was made to help his father, a tax collector, the basic principle of the calculator is still used today in water meters and modern-day odometers. So, ha-ha, I don't know why I did that. Let's jump ahead to 1801, because shit moved at a fairly slogging pace back then. Entertainment with shadow puppets and punching people with abacuses. Seriously, the history of the computer is very complex, contentious, and debated as to what constitute what and when. I could do an entire series on it. If I had those books. So, for the sake of time and my own sanity, I'm going to do a highlight reel kind of thing, so to speak. So, in 1801, Joseph Marie Jacquard, I don't know if that's how you say it, but he's French, a French merchant and inventor, invents a loom that uses punched wooden cards to automatically weave fabric designs. Early computers would use the same kind of thing, only, you know, with less fabric and less flattering lines. A scant 20 years later, the namesake of a software company named Babbage's that would later become GameStop, Charles Babbage, conceives of a steam-driven calculating machine that would be able to compute tables of numbers. Funded by the British government, the project is called the Difference Engine. Did it work? <laughs> Fuck no. It failed due to the lack of technology at the time, which goes to show nothing good can ever come from steam. Then... There was a predecessor to Mr. Gates, Ada Lovelace, daughter of poet Lord Byron. She writes the world's first computer program. It was a set of instructions for GameStop Babbage's uh, metallic calculation turd. It's a step-by-step -step description for computation of Bernoulli numbers. God, I fucked that name up, didn't I? Bernoulli numbers. B-E-R-N-O-U-L-L-I. 
Bernalilli? Bernalilli. I have no idea. Bernalilli numbers with uh, Babbage's machine. It's basically an algorithm. <laughs> what the fuck is an algorithm, you ask? Good motherfucking question. You're very smart. It's a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. An everyday example of what an algorithm is would be to think of a recipe as an algorithm for cooking a particular food. Ah, now what are Bernoulli numbers, you ask in a continued line of very good questioning. They are a sequence of rational numbers often used in computation. They're first mentioned in the posthumous work Ars Conjectandi. It was written in 1713 by Jacob Bernoulli. Leonhard Euler, I, no, he's, he's Swiss, so their names, he's a Swiss mathematician who made pioneering and influential discoveries in many branches of mathematics, such as analytical number theory, complex analysis, and infinitesimal calculus. He used them to express the sums of equal powers of consecutive integers. They also are important in classical assaults of Fermat's last theorem. <laughs> Deeper into the hole we go. Fermat's last theorem was a mathematical conjecture written sometime in 1620 and found after he died in a margin of Fermat's copy of Diophantus' Arithmetica by his son Samuel, who was collecting his papers to be published. Fermat's last theorem states that if n is an integer greater than 2, the equation x to the nth plus y to the nth equals z to the nth has no positive integral solutions. Fermat noted that he had a truly wonderful proof of the conjecture, but uh, he never wrote it down. In 1995, a general proof was published by the Princeton-based British mathematician Andrew Wiles. Okay, okay, I know, we're in the weeds now. Back to computers, which are still kind of in the weeds. Okay, finishing out the 1800s, Swedish inventor, oh my god, Perjors Schutz, oh fucking hell, and his kid Edvard designed the world's first printing calculator. The machine is significant for being the first to compute tabular differences and print the results. In 1890, Herman Hollerith designs a punch card system, uh, punch cards, like I said, to help calculate the 1890 U.S. Census. The machine saves the government several years of calculations, and the U.S. taxpayer approximately $5 million, which is equivalent in purchasing power to, you ready for this, $152,718,681.32 today. Holy shit! Thinking back to the Object of Beauty episode, that amount of money could buy you the Portrait de la Artiste Sans Barbe, or the Portrait of the Artist Without Beard, by Vincent Van Gogh. Goes for a low, low price of $98.5 million. You would still have money left over to pay Jennifer Aniston at $25.5 million, and Jennifer Lawrence at $24 million to, uh, you know, maybe make a movie that's a constant makeout session. Well, well, you know, while you all three also look at the painting. I mean, if you're into that, wouldn't be a porno, but uh, I mean, it would be something tasteful. The age difference might be weird, though. So, uh, oh, how about uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg for uh, for 68 million? I mean, you probably you probably have to talk him down a little bit. So, if you want it to happen bad enough, though, maybe sell him on the idea of of you know being in the presence of a Van Gogh, and maybe he can you know be in the presence of it half naked if that's what you're into. You know, while while he's while he's doing nothing for anyway, Denzel, uh, 
He makes about the same. I mean, he's a little older, but I mean, if you're into that, there's that gray mix thing going on. Eh, you can get Jennifer Hudson. Uh, she does about 20 mil a year. That's so, so does Nicki Minaj. So maybe even a performance? Maybe? I mean, you never know. I don't know. There's lots going on here. You can, you know, do whatever you got enough money to do that and have the Van Gogh. Regardless, you could hire a famous actor to hang around for a year. It never hurts to ask, especially after dropping tens of millions on a person and letting them hang out with a Van Gogh. Okay? I'm getting off track. Fuck! Where was I? Right. Yes, the 1900s. Now, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or, you know, MIT, home of uh, that uh, genius math janitor, Vannevar Bush invents a invents and builds the differential analyzer, the first large-scale automatic general-purpose mechanical analog computer. It reduced the time and effort to carry out calculations and made many observers think, hmm, there may be something to this computer shit. Now, a heavy hitter in the realm of computers enters the picture. Alan, I was born 100 years too early, Turing, presents the principle of a universal machine, later called the Turing machine, in a paper called on computable numbers in 1937. The central concept of the modern computer is based on his ideas. Some people are seriously born far, far ahead of their time. And Mr. Turing is one of those guys. The guy was just pure fucking genius, man. Jumping ahead to 1941, John Vincent Atanasoff. I fucked that name up, but whatever. And his graduate student, graduate, and his graduate student, Clifford Berry, I got that fucking name. They designed the first digital electronic computer in the U.S. called the Atanasoff Berry Computer, or ABC, or awkward and terrible name for a computer. Always name it like like you would an awesome killing device from the future. They could have called it the Mamatron. The Mamatron 6000. Regardless. Not only is it poorly named, but it is the first computer that could store information on its main memory and is capable of performing one operation every 15 seconds. If only it could store nude pics, right? It couldn't, but maybe maybe it probably just store it, it would store just a description of what they would look like if they could. Like it, description of a hot picture of Rita Hayworth kneeling on a bed made up with uh, satin sheets, her silky Nightgown is white with black lace trimming the low-cut top. Commence boners. Moving on. More advancements are made in 1946. Motchley and Presper leave the University of Pennsylvania and receive funding from the Census Bureau to build the UNIVAC, the first commercial computer for businesses and government applications. Fucking hell, the census again. Who knew so much of today's technology wouldn't be here if we didn't have such a hard time counting people? 2,206, 2,207, 2,200,000. Hey, hey, stop moving back there. D damn it, did I count you? D damn it, son of a bitch. How many times did I, how many times did I do that? How many times have I, oh, fucking shit. Why isn't there a machine or some shit to help do this? <sighs> Fuck it, I'm starting over. Then, in 1953, Grace Hopper developed the first computer language, which eventually becomes known as uh, COBOL, C-O-B-O-L, which stands for Common Business-Oriented Language. She's dubbed the First Lady of Software. The next year, 1954, 
John Backus and his team of programmers at IBM publish a paper describing their newly featured Fortran programming language, an acronym for Formula Translation. Fucking hell. Nerds. Ha! Nerds! Anyway, more highlights. In 1968, Douglas Engelbart reveals a prototype of the modern computer at the Fall Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco. His presentation, called A Research Center for Augmenting Human Intellect, includes a live demonstration of his computer, including a mouse, and a graphical user interface. It would later become known as the mother of all demos. Its setup of a screen, keyboard, and mouse are the first echoes of what desktop computers would later become. There's a video of it up on YouTube. I'll, I'll pin it to the Elton Reads a Book a Week Facebook page, which uh, you should totally fucking go to and click the like button. We're up to 1969 now. And Ken Thomas and Dennis Ritchie and a group of other developers at Bell Labs produced Unix, an operating system that made large-scale networking of diverse computing systems and the internet practical. Now, for the nerdly gamer types out there, here's something for you. 1972, Ralph Baer, a German-American engineer, releases Magnavox Odyssey, the world's first home game console in 1972. That's according to the Computer Museum of America. Months later, entrepreneur Noel Bushnell and engineer Al Alcorn, my God, these names, with Atari, they released Pong, the world's first commercially successful video game. And now, and by now I mean back then, in 1975, the man who secretly runs the world enters the picture. All because of a magazine. This highlights the Altair as the world's first mini-computer kit to rival commercial models. After seeing the magazine issue, two computer geeks, Paul Allen and Bill Gates, offer to write software for the Altair using the new basic language, which stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. On April 4th, after the success of their first endeavor, the two childhood friends formed their own software company called Microsoft. Before we go any further, Mr. Bill must be torn apart. Figuratively, of course, I don't want this played at a deposition. You know, should Bill later be found to be actually torn apart? Okay, let's uh, let's talk about him. That's what I'm saying. Let's see how he changed the motherfucking computer game forever. Then, you know, the birth of the fucking internet. Ender of humanity's boredom, social well-being, and conscience. Soul. Bill Gates was born Henry Williams Gates III to a half-lizard, half-human William H. Gates Sr., he lived from 1925 to 2020. And later, taking the uh, human genome vessel of Mary Maxwell Gates, 1929 to 1994. He took her as his mate. Uh, Willie Sr. was the founder of the law firm Schindler, McBroom, and Gates, and also served as president of both the Seattle King County and Washington State Bar Associations. Later, inducted into the Masonic shadow chapter of the New World DNA Assimilation Genome Project, tasked with manipulating world economies, as well as the elected treasurer of their monthly lizard meet-and-greet mixers. William was selected by our abstruse lizard overlords to render a male heir with his pure human DNA-carrying counterpart. Let's talk about her. Mary Gates was a lady of many firsts, it seems. She was the first female president of King County's United Way, the first woman to chair the National United Way's executive committee where she served most notably with IBM CEO John Opel 
and the first woman on the first interstate bank of Washington's, Washington's, of Washington's board of directors. She served on the boards of various major corporations, including the first interstate bank, Unigard Security Insurance Group, and Pacific Northwest Bell. She also served for 18 years on the University of Washington's Board of Regents. Way to break the glass ceiling, Mary. And she was also the first to give birth to Bill Gates on October 28, 1955 in Seattle, Washington. Where else? Before I continue, Bill Gates has been made the nucleus of many, many insane conspiracy theories. Uh, I can't help but infuse some of their insanity in what's to come. I apologize. That's what that whole lizard Masonic nonsense was. It's just pure stupidity for me. I can't help it. It's, it's just funny to me. Anyway, moving on. Bill, or Trey, as that's Trey. Yes, they, they for real called him Trey. That's not me fucking around. Bill, or Trey, as he is known in his family. That's not a joke. That's real. Because he is William Gates III. Get it? Three. Trey. His dad being the second. Um, he was born on Friday under the sign of Scorpio, which means Bill is part of the Illuminati New Order deep state. It's all right there. It's been there all along. How could I have been so stupid? The signs. The signs were right there. Trey means three, which means if you take the number of letters in his full name, which is 17, then when divided by the number three, comes out to 5.6666. If you round that up, it comes out to six, which if you again go by him being the third William Gates, three sixes, six, 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 he's the devil. Or if not the devil, then devil adjacent, possibly an advisor or person. Uh, perhaps he's in in a think tank for Satan. I'm not sure. I'm just a person not taken in by the NWO mind stealing 5G tower signals. Wake up, people! It's the end times. No, no, it means that according to Times of India dot India Times dot com, uh, him being a Scorpio means he's a mysterious, profound thinker that's secretive, passionate, and constantly a step away from the public. Plus, very emotional and wants connection. Which plays right into what the book he partially wrote is all about. The internet! Another conspiracy! Yes! And I'm back to Earth, where it actually means uh, he shares the same birthday as Veronique Mathau. Uh, she's a famous violinist, now teaching at the University of Saskatchewan as Associate Professor of Violin, and is the first holder of the prestigious David L. Kaplan Choir in Music. And, you know, it means a little more beyond that. He also shared his parents with his two sisters, Christiane and Libby. Christiane being his older sister and Libby being his younger sister. The Gates family uh, atmosphere was warm and close, and all three children were encouraged to be competitive and strive for excellence. Bill showed early signs of competitiveness when he coordinated family athletic games at their summer house on Puget Sound. He also relished in playing board games. Risk was his favorite. And he excelled at Monopoly, because of course he did. He was also very close to his mother. After a brief stint as a teacher, Mary Gates devoted her time to helping raise the children and working on civic events and with charities. Gates was a voracious reader as a child, spending many hours poring over reference books such as encyclopedias. Around the age of 11 or 12, his parents began to have concerns about his behavior. He was doing well in school, but he seemed bored and withdrawn at times, and his parents worried he might become a loner. Though they were strong believers in public education, when Bill turned 13, his parents enrolled him at Seattle's exclusive preparatory Lakeside School. He blossomed nearly all his subjects, excelling in math and science, but also doing very well in drama and English. He did so well, in fact, the school gave him permission to leave math to pursue his other interests. 
His biggest interest, as it turns out, was made of plastic and had a keyboard. You guessed it, Bill Gates fell in love with the guitar. What would later be a mainstay of 80s dance pop became Bill's first love. He forsook everything, including the touch of another human being. Spending countless hours mastering the instrument, he would emerge from his bedroom just long enough to eat before returning to his, quote, sweet keys, unquote. Finally, after three years of constant practice, he demonstrated his devotion and passion for the instrument at his school's musical talent showcase. Sadly, the reviews of that night tell the tale. Quote, a young Bill Gates came out with a plastic joke strapped to his body and finished with a punchline of music so bad it made me want to forgive the uncle that molested me as a baby because at least he wasn't as awful as Bill's music. Unquote. Wow. Bill was never the same. His family would later recall that, quote, a light went out of his eyes, unquote. He immediately grew cold, distant, and bitter. Often he would snarl and grit his teeth around classmates, muttering things like, I'll show you, I'll show all of you, one day I'll own you all. You, 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 the whole world, the whole fucking world, you'll see, I'll own, I'll own you all. He'd then retreat to a corner, hunch over, and pound away on the guitar that never left his side, staring unnervingly at horrified classmates and teachers without blinking. Sorry, I I don't know why I said that, but it was in my head and imagining Bill Gates' success streaming from a scoffed guitar performance. Ah, that was something I just had to play out. Sorry. Anyway, uh, no, no, the interest he had, of course, was... Uh, was in the school's newly acquired teletype terminal and his uh, and his equally new friend Paul Allen. Bill Gates and Paul Allen first met as teenagers in the nineteenth. I'll show you all. Fucking down to the keys. All right. Bill Gates and Paul Allen first met as teenagers in the in the late nineteen sixties at Lakeside School in Seattle. <laughs> When Gates was in 8th grade and Allen was in 10th grade. <laughs> Fuck it mm. Just picturing him in the corner staring. Anyway, <laughs> Allen was more reserved and shy. Gates was feisty and at times combative. Regardless of their differences, Allen and Gates spent much of their free time together working on programs. Later... There were a few bromance-friendly handjobs, you know? No eye contact, and they, they never brought it up later, you know, until the next time. Uh, <laughs> no, no. It was the computer terminal that first brought them together, Gates said of uh, Alan. Our school, Lakeside, held a rummage sale. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Our school, Lakeside, held a rummage sale and used the proceeds to buy a teletype terminal. We were obsessed with it. Gates became entranced with what a computer could do and spent much of his free time working on the terminal. He wrote a tic-tac-toe program in the basic computer language that allowed users to play against the computer. There is a picture, actually, in the book of Bill Gates hanging out with Paul Allen around this time. Paul looks like a college freshman who just picked up a new smoking habit. He's working on, you know, getting to know guys that don't punch him regularly and uh, fresh off a slew of women turning him down. Bill! Bill looks like he follows Paul around, hoping to find out what weed smells like. I'll put the picture up on Twitter or Facebook. One of them. It's bizarre that they're only two years apart. When they met, Bill was 12 and Paul was 14. Fucking 
crazy. A local Seattle company offered the use of its computer via a teletype link to the school. Computer terminals were rare at the time, and as a result, it was really expensive to use. $40 an hour, Gates said. The only way for us to get computer time was by exploiting a bug in the system. Logging into the system remotely, Bill and Paul were able to access the full computing power of the company's system. Then they fed the computer information on a subject that they, and any straight male their ages, would, uh, would want to understand. Women. This was all in an effort to create a female simulation within the computer. The idea was to use it to better gauge how to successfully interact with girls. They did this by posing questions, hypothetical situations, etc., to uh, gain insight into a woman's perspective. The initial plan was to gather information, but quickly it evolved beyond that to, uh, to include a ritual involving a doll, bras strapped to their heads, and copious amounts of electricity. Lo and behold, it was a mixed success. Ending with the creation of a magical power-wielding supermodel they named Lisa. And, uh, oh, wait, no, wait. Wait, that's the, uh, that's the plot to Weird Science. Shit, my bad. No, in reality, they actually exploited a bug in the business's system using the teletype terminal to give themselves usage privileges. Gates and three of his friends were banned from the school computers when they, uh, when they were found out that they had been exploiting uh, the link to give themselves free computer time. Gates added, quote, But that led to our first official partnership between Paul and me. We worked out a deal with the company to use the computers for free if we could identify problems. Unquote. End quote. One of those. During this time, Gates developed a payroll program for the computer company the boys had hacked into and a scheduling program for the school. In 1970, at the age of 15, Gates and Allen went into business together developing Trafo Data, a computer program that monitored traffic patterns in Seattle. They netted $20,000 for their efforts. Gates and Allen wanted to start their own company, but, but Gates' parents wanted him to, you know, finish school and go to fucking college, where they hoped, uh, you know, he would maybe become a lawyer and not some fucking billion-dollar-yielding asshole. Ah, fuck, I'm, I'm just fucking four billion a year. Anyway, Gates was never short on academic aptitude and excelled his way to graduation as incredibly... Smart assholes often do. He famously got 1590 out of 1600 on his SATs, which is weird because that's the same score I tell people I got on the SATs. Small fucking world, Bill. <laughs> I wonder if he's lying too. I mean, not lying. Who's lying? We're not lying. We're smart is what we are. <laughs> Bill and Paul continued to work together after high school. And in 1974, the summer after Gates' freshman year at Harvard, they were both computer programmers at the software company Honeywell. And in 1975, when Bill was 19, he dropped out of his sophomore year of college because he's a fucking loser. At least, at least I'm not a dropout, Bill. How's that feel, you fucking dipshit? Yeah, that stupid loser Bill dropped out, you know, to launch, to launch Microsoft, which, as we all know... Failed. Failed its way into a trillion dollar valuation. <laughs> Damn it. So, now back to the story from earlier. How did Microsoft happen? Because of a magazine. It may have been the most momentous purchase of a magazine in the history of the out-of-town newsstand in Harvard Square. 
Paul Allen, a college dropout from Seattle, left school to work for Honeywell. And like dropout losers often do, he wandered into the cluttered kiosk one snowy day in December 1974 and saw the new issue of Hustler magazine. Obsessed with what Allen affectionately referred to as Diggo Biddies, he absconded with the magazine without paying. Catching a cop's eye who happened to be working in the area, he gave chase. Allen dashed to Bill's dorm room and hammered on his door, interrupting Bill's quiet study time. Bill opened the door and was dumbfounded to find a breathless Paul Allen clutching a porno mag. Take this sweet titty mag and hide it. Fucking cops on my ass, bro, he commanded while throwing the smut at Bill, who fumbled to keep a hold of the magazine while also trying to shut the door. Then Paul hurriedly interjects. Oh, we should start a software company to write programs for the Altair 8800. It's an inexpensive microcomputer produced by a company called MITS in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I saw it on the cover of the latest popular electronics magazine before I pilfered this sweet titty meat porno zine. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic idea, Mr. Allen, Bill answered. Yeah, now hide my fucking porn, bro. The cop is coming up, Paul replied before heaving himself over the railing while yelling, Fuck you, pig! P-Dog doesn't bow to blue pork, bitches! Yeah, he said that, and then he was blindsided by the on-foot backup patrolman coming the other way. The rest, as they say, is history. Uh... No. No, Paul picked up an issue of Popular Electronics that featured a home computer for hobbyists called the Altair 8800 a system made by Micro-Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems, MITS. That part of the uh, Paul Allen porn heist was true. He was both exhilarated and dismayed. The era of the personal computer seemed to have arrived, though uh, though he was afraid he was going to miss the party. Paying 75 cents for the magazine, he grabbed the issue and trotted through the slush to the courier house, uh, the room of Bill Gates, that had the room of Bill Gates in it. Uh, he was a Harvard sophomore at the time. No one had yet developed software for the Isle Tear, and the young programmer saw a unique opportunity. When Paul showed me that magazine, there was no such thing as a software industry, Gates recalled. We had the insight that you could create one, and we did. Years later, reflecting on his innovations, he said, That was the most important idea that I ever had. <laughs> I hear him as like a Kermit the Frog ripoff in my head. Whatever. I'm sorry, I just had to do that. He recalled that when he and Paul read about the Altair, they understood that the price of computers would soon drop to the point that selling software for them would be a profitable business. Bill actually called MITS, the uh, the Altair's creator, and told them he and a fellow student had made a programming language for it. That was a fucking lie. They hadn't even seen one in person yet. Gates said they could show them the programming language on the next holiday. So they worked the shit out of it and went to New Mexico to demo it. Again, on a machine neither of them had ever seen in person before. Amazingly, they pulled it off. They adapted the computer language BASIC to run on the uh, new device. Although they had never actually interacted with it, like I said, it was an interpreter for the BASIC programming language that ran on the MITS Altair 8800 and subsequent S100 bus computers. Allen recalled that it was he who came up with the groundbreaking idea that they could write a basic software, something they believed would unlock the holy grail of the personal computer, the birth of a world in which computers would give us 
not just a little, but all of the porno. All of it. No, again, no. It was, uh, it was that they would become so cheap and user-friendly that they would be in every home. Gates first tried to poo-poo the idea. Allen claimed, insisting on waiting until more powerful hardware came on the market. Regardless, on the strength of this programming feat, they secured a software development deal with MITS. With that sniff of the soon-to-be green, Gates left Harvard at the beginning of his junior year to go all-in on the business. Along with Paul Allen, he moved to New Mexico at the end of 1975 to produce software for MITS. The following year, they started Microsoft, a company that went through a rather strange naming process. Paul said we should call the company Processware, which I quickly shot down, Bill recalled. It sounds like you're saying swear in it, <laughs> which might turn people off. We thought harder, and I said, Paul, I've got it. You remember back in school, all those kids that pulled my pants down? Yeah, he said. That was horrible. Well, I want to name it after that stupid nickname they gave me. Paul looked at me like I was crazy. You want to call it Microsoft? I isn't that... Yes, I interjected. Let's call it the name they used when they pulled my pants down and threw me at the cheerleaders in middle school. And also in high school. And also college. Bill, that's horrible. Why would you... Why would you want to name... I, I mean, why would you do that to yourself? Paul asked me. Because... Because they laughed. Paul. Because they were horrible. You see... I want Microsoft to become the biggest, most profitable company on the planet. I want them to see the name they taunted me with, staring back at them through every innovation, every technological leap forward, every time their world changes, every time they're forced to adapt to something new and better. So when they count their failings and miseries every day of their existence, I'll be there. Figuratively, of course, at first. At first? Paul questioned. Yes. You see, over time, I plan to hunt them for sport. Then, when they're at their most vulnerable, I'll make them watch while I burn their houses and valuables in front of them. I'll leave them nothing. Things that took them decades to acquire. Gone. Their kids will scream for their daddies and mommies as the flames rise higher, and I'll say, Oh, daddy's here, children. Mommy is right here. They're right here. But you don't have to call them Daddy and Mommy anymore, no. You can call them Microsoft's bitch. I remember Paul looking at me with incredulousness and concern and saying, You okay, Bill? I mean, I think you might need to talk to somebody. And I said, The time for talking is through, Paul. The time of Microsoft is upon us. All hail the Microsoft, Paul. All hail. Do we understand each other, Paul? Oh, okay, Bill, is what he said. <laughs> Whatever you say. Just go, uh, just go easy, huh? Go, go easy. <laughs> and that's how we fucking named it. No, uh, no, it's named after the word microcomputer and software, but, uh, I like mine better. So from there... Microsoft wrote software for MITS until the company was sold. Gates moved Microsoft to Bellevue, Washington, near his hometown of Seattle. 
a, uh, a choice that would make the Pacific Northwest a center of the computer software universe. It was around this time that IBM, the ruling computer warlord at the time, decided to dip their toes into utterly fucking dominating the emerging personal computer market. Rather than you know devote any of its god-level tech folk to the menial task of making an operating system for their own fucking computer, they called upon Bill motherfucking Gates and his Microsoft penis to do it. Before we go on, a few words about operating systems used in personal computers. Say, friend, you remember all that hullabaloo about that brief overview on the history of computers we just went through? Well, here's where it's going to make sense. For all those years of development, it was the actual computer element that was being worked up from the processor to the who's what's it. The parts were literally screwed, soldered, wired, and glued. To make it work for you, you had to give it something to do. For a long time, that meant writing instructional implements line by line, or by punching out cards and feeding it to it one at a time, or later giving it a very specific program or computer language that the computer's users knew beforehand. For instance, Altair Basic, which is programming language Billy Boy and Paul came up with. You would have to type out a series of specific instructions for the computer's hardware to compute and execute it into functions. An example would be 100 REM guessing game. Or REM, I don't know. Uh, you'd leave line 110 blank, and then line 120, you write, print, uh, quote, guess the number between 1 and 100, period. Close quotes. Line 130, blank. Line 140, let X equal INT, parenthesis, open parentheses, 100, star symbol thing, RND, uh, open parentheses, zero, close parentheses, plus one, uh, close parentheses, line 150, let N equal zero, fucking, oh my God, fucking, that's, oh my, I have no idea what the, even the hell that was. That, uh, that's, that's a game, a guessing, a number guessing game. I don't know. It fucking programming languages like basic, though easy to learn by programming standards, had a bit of a learning curve uh, for average schmoes like myself. Usually it's, it was just too much for the average person to fucking deal with. But however, this is how all early computers were run individual commands in a certain order to obtain certain results. A computer, a programming language is used to write programs for them. Programs like an operating system for a computer. An operating system is a computer's most important software. It manages the computer's memory, processes, and all of its software and hardware. Imagine it to be like the manager of a warehouse slash factory. You can tell it what you want or need, and it'll tell the relevant personnel to get it or do it for you. With, without an operating system, you're stuck learning an entire programming language to use a computer, uh, and you would be hammering a keyboard Typing things like find slash, you know, uh, I name uh, donkey show dot mov. <laughs> Error. The fuck do you mean? Just, just show me the damn Tijuana donkey show, you stupid computer. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, it's not for me. It's uh, it's, it's for it's for a friend. It's it's for a friend um, that'll that'll be here in a little in a little while. Just 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 uh, just find the damn file. IBM initially approached Microsoft Bill, Billfold Gates, uh, to make an OS because uh, they they might have thought that Microsoft owned the operating system, uh, well, one that they could use. Instead, IBM uh, was sent to a company called Digital Research, and a meeting was set up. 
Unfortunately, negotiations for the use of that company's operating system broke down. Digital Research wished to sell uh, their operating system on a royalty basis, meaning they would get part of every sale while, while, IB, while IBM uh, sought just a single license for the whole thing. Or, you know, like a flat rate to use on all of their computers. Oh, and uh, IBM wanted to change the name of the OS to PCDOS. Digital Research founder Gary Kildall uh, said something akin to, um, fuck that noise, and uh, IBM withdrew. So, so IBM swung back over to Bill's house of Microsofting, and he slash Microsoft was tasked with writing up the operating system, or OS, for IBM's first personal computer. And how did he fare? Did he, uh, did he, you know, did he cave under the pressure? Did he slave away for weeks on end? Paper strewn around him, prematurely balding, while uh, he snorted lines of questionably sourced amphetamines to stay up? Uh, no, not not really, no. Uh, he bought one from someone else, uh, fiddled with it a little bit, and changed the name. Gates approached a company called Seattle Computer Products. There, a programmer named Tin Pat... Tin, Tin, Tin. Yes, the Tin Man worked there, and he fucking developed some fucking... A programmer named Tim Patterson had developed an operating system intended as an internal product for testing new computer components. He named it QDOS, or Quick and Dirty Operating System. I like it. Before before they could sell it to the public as <clears throat> a renamed 86DOS, Bill stepped in and was like, So, uh, you think maybe you could sell it to me instead? You know, so so that I can become, I don't know, maybe one of the richest people on the planet. <laughs> you know, maybe, I don't know, get wrapped up in a bunch of conspiracy theories involving vaccinations and microchipping people for world domination, maybe. Fuck yeah, Bill. We'll help you in your freaky eugenic storyline. Just let me uh, copy it to a floppy disk, baby. You weird half-lizard son of a bitch. No, it didn't go down quite like that. But Microsoft did purchase 86DOS, allegedly for about $50,000. This became Microsoft Disk Operating System, or MS-DOS, introduced in 1981. It's right here in the Billy Gates story that he earned his business stripes. He makes a deal to license it to IBM, but in the deal, he keeps the rights to it. And how does, that, how does he make that happen? He says... Pay, you can just pay me less. Why? Because uh, IBM was going to be sued by a company claiming the OS was similar to theirs. IBM, in its own little ninja dealings, put the kibosh on that. And uh, they cut a side deal with them and they said, look, we'll sell your version and Billy Microsoft Billfold's version the same time. We'll give, you, we'll give the customers the option, you or Billy's version. Bill, upon hearing that, opted for less money because he figured IBM would not only sell Microsoft's version at a lower price because he was taking less money, but it would also promote it more because IBM would be making more on the back end. What Bill was playing, he was playing the long game of, uh, of the personal computer. Rather than try and cash in and just sell to one company like IBM, he figured that there were more people that bought that IBM PC, and they learned Microsoft MS-DOS, that meant 
more people would be comfortable using it. They'd be learning it. They'd be getting comfortable with it, which means they'll build a preference for it. And then when they buy another PC, they'll want to use MS-DOS. And then MS-DOS becomes the PC market's standard OS that they want to put on all their computers because people keep asking for it because they already know it, which means it'll be in demand by every personal computer manufacturer in the world so they can have the most popular OS that people just want, right? Why cash in on one computer company when you can cash in on all of them forever? Well, except one major one, but who cares about Steve still dead jobs? I mean, Apple, really? <laughs> and that's the game, people. Microsoft goes on to dominate the PC operating system market for fucking ever. Hell, it's why this podcast is being made on a Windows PC. Well, that and I can't afford a Mac. Well, regardless, Bill finagled Microsoft's products into schools, houses, government offices, everywhere using that same kind of selling technique, all to more or less become the standard baseline software that people learn to use with a computer. So when they buy a computer, it would be a PC using a Microsoft operating system. According to Statista.com, Windows, which is what MS-DOS would eventually be developed into, uh, it holds a 71.06% share of the desktop, tablet, and console OS market in September 2021. So when the internet became a buzzword idea, people were talking about, it's the reason he was one of the people asked about it the most, being that he was partially responsible for the computer people were going to be using on the internet the most. Well, the computer type, the, the, the OS that people were going to be using to get on the internet the most. Okay, so what is the internet, right? Where did it come from? And how is it going to help Microsoft Billfold bring the wretched masses to its knees to institute his lizard Illuminati globalist depopulation microchipping agenda using the internet? Well, that I don't know. Well, I don't, well, that I don't know. But I can go over what the internet is and how that started. Then we'll get Bill's lizard person thoughts on it. The internet quasi began in the 1960s as a way for government researchers to share information. The computers back in that day filled a room. So if you wanted to take information from one to the other, a person had to physically travel between the computers carrying it from one to the other. Or, you know, call on the phone and stuff. So, wanting to make it easier to transfer things from one to the other without having to, you know, charter a fucking plane or rent a car made a lot of sense. So you can thank laziness for the internet, which is getting us back by making us, you know, lazy. So what the fuck, Tom? I have to drag three cases of magnetic computer tapes to Atlanta so you can tell Jim about your cat? Not my cat! Hey, cat, Daryl, you fucking asshole. This cat is asking if he can has cheeseburger. It's goddamn hilarious, Daryl. You're not sophisticated enough to understand. Just, just get on the fucking airplane. Jim will meet you at the airport. Can't, can't you just tell him about it? God damn it, Daryl. Do you even understand computers? Combining laziness with the Cold War, you get one step closer to full-on worldwide webbing with the advent of the ARPANET, DARPA's project, was the, uh, which was a DARPA project, it was a forerunner of the internet as we know it today. 
DARPA, by the way, is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They are a research and development agency of the United States Department of Defense, responsible for developing uh, emerging technologies for use by the military. ARPANET was created to construct a decentralized communications network that would function after a nuclear attack. Nuclear? Nuclear? Anyway. It basically arose from a desire to share information over great distances without the need for dedicated phone connections between each computer on the network. You know, because dedicated phone connections uh, would be fucking obliterated when you drop a nuclear bomb on them. Unfortunately, ARPANET wasn't for regular citizens, of course, because, um, you know, because all they would do with it is share cats asking human questions and draw dicks on everything. No, it was for scientists, academic types, military types, and engineer types to talk to each other about cats and dicks via online bulletin boards and, and crude forms of messaging and email. Crude meaning rudimentary. Not crude, meaning, you know, dicks and stuff. Why did, I, why did I just say dicks so much? Moving on. January 1st, 1983 is considered the official birthday of the internet, so it just passed. That was it, you know, celebrate it now. Um, I don't know. That was the deadline. January 1st, 1983 was the deadline uh, for ARPANET computers to switch over to the TCP slash IP protocols developed by a guy named Vinton Cerf an American internet pioneer, and is recognized as one of the fathers of the internet. Did you know the internet had more than one father? I bet you didn't. Sharing this title with another developer named Bob Kahn. And a few hundred, a few hundred computers were affected by the switch. Prior to this, the various computer networks didn't have a standard way to talk. A new communications protocol called Transfer Control Protocol slash Internetwork Protocol that's the uh, TCP slash IP thing I mentioned earlier. That was created to do just that. A lot of what you do on the internet today is because of those protocols. Whether it's sending email messages, which I don't think people really do anymore. Or watching Netflix or, you know, getting directions. Hmm. They involve computers communicating. It allows different kinds of computers on different networks to talk to each other for the first time. ARPANET and the Defense Data Network officially changed to uh, those protocols... Uh, and made them standard on January 1st, 1983. You know, hence the birth of the internet. All networks could now be connected by a universal language, so to speak. No pun intended. One of my favorite stories regarding the beginning of the internet, which uh, plays into my belief that humanity is one of the universe's dark jokes, is about the first message sent over the ARPANET and in turn the internet. Led by UCLA computer scientist Leonard Kleinrock, a group of students and researchers met up in a basement lab at the engineering school to see if they could send a message between computers on the network, one at UCLA and the other one way the fuck over at the Stanford Research Institute, several hundred miles away in good old Menlo Park, California. The entire message was supposed to read, look up shitty schools for dummies in the dictionary, and Stanford is listed first, you bunch of dickless shitbags. UCLA Computer Science Department rules, nerd bitches! Eat our math rap shit, motherfuckers. When UCLA graduate student Charlie Klein started typing the message, he got as far as typing the letters L-O. Then the network fucking crashed. Hence, low being uh, the first message ever sent over the internet. Okay, that's only partly true. The word uh, he was trying to type was login when the uh, network crashed. Hence, hence low. Still, it's still a comically fucking dumb beginning. 
I mean, for something that momentous to have happened, just, I don't know, two computers miles apart, successfully communicating, that's a moment that many people consider the beginning of the internet, the actual very beginning, and and it was a complete fuck up. Because human beings have been comically fucking up historic firsts for over 300,000 years. I'm pretty sure that the first attempt at the wheel probably broke something or uh, was done by accident. You know, someone was, I don't know, chewing a piece of bread and they're like, look, I made a circle. And they dropped it and it rolled and then they fucking ate it. Like, it, it would be something ridiculously fucking awful. Anyway. After many protocols were established to transfer files and communicate via this groundbreaking Lieben technology. After that, many program after that, many protocols were established to transfer files and communicate via this groundbreaking leap in technology. Then the sultry vixen we all know and love came along, the World Wide Web, using its shapely hips and sensuous lips and keen ability to seduce anyone with its charm. It lulled us into its brain-numbingly sweet dominance. Here's all the free porno, memes, and dance challenges you'll ever want. Just don't go doing things like getting a hobby or socially interacting with people. I've got what you need, baby. I come to Mama Internet and get all the dopamine hits you'll ever need. That's right. Click, baby. Click. That was of the uh, edited poorly. We became very good friends after an unfortunate mishap regarding the drunken theft of my car. It's used in an armed robbery attempt at a convenience store on Hollywood Boulevard and me not telling anyone about it, which I swore I would never do. Oh, shit. Uh, uh, <laughs> just fucking, just forget everything I just said. By 1987, there were nearly 30,000 hosts on the internet. The original ARPANET protocol had been limited to 1,000 hosts when it first started up, but with the adoption of the TCP slash IP standard, it made larger numbers of hosts possible. And in 1989, when Apple pulled out of the Apple Link program, which was a popular online service for Mac prior to the advent of the internet, the program was renamed America Online, and AOL was born. It made the internet popular amongst the general population. This wasn't full internet per se, but a connection between computers who were running the AOL software, not the World Wide Web, actual web pages and whatnot. That was proposed by Tim Berners-Lee from CERN a little later. It was written to persuade CERN that a global hypertext system was in CERN's best interest. It was originally called MESH, M-E-S-H. The term World Wide Web was coined while Berners-Lee was writing the code in 1990, along with the standards for HTML, HTTP, and URLs, which deal with website structure and their motherfucking addresses. A web browser, by the way, in case you didn't know, is an application that retrieves documents from a network and renders them on your screen. In this case, documents on the fucking internet. In 1991, the first web page was created. It went live on August 6, 1991. 
It was dedicated to information on the World Wide Web project and was made by Tim Berners-Lee himself. He ran on a next NEXT computer at the European Organization for Nuclear Research at CERN. Uh, if you're interested, I'll leave a link in the description. Then, after that, in 1985, a few important developments, like the Secure Sockets Layer, or SSL, encryption was developed by Netflix, which made it safer to buy stuff online. So you can thank them every time you safely drunk buy something from Amazon at 3 in the morning. And uh, uh, AOL and other providers um, started integrating web browsing into their services too. Plus, third-party browsers became available around that time. 1995 is often considered the first year the, uh, the web became commercialized. It was during this time that Bill's fame and bank account blew up. Microsoft released Windows 95, it sold for $209.95, which in today's money equates to very goddamn expensive. It merged Microsoft's formerly separate MS-DOS, mentioned earlier, and other Microsoft Windows products. It featured significant improvements over its predecessor, most notably in its graphical user interface. All that mouse clicking, dragging, and MS Paint fun. It was a huge fucking deal for Microsoft and Bill. I still remember people bitching about the Rolling Stones song, Start Me Up, being used in their ads. The fucking Stones sold out, man. They went corporate. I can't believe these fucking rock star pricks whose job it is to sell records that contain their songs slash product to consumers. I can't believe they would sell their song slash product to a company to then sell their song slash product and the company's product together. What? Fucking musicians. They should know they can only sell their songs slash product in one acceptable way to maintain rock and roll authenticity, man. Hey, can you hand me that hat with the car logo on it? No, no, not, not that one. The, 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 no, the, the one right next to that beer can with my favorite NFL team's logo on it. Yeah, that one. Fucking Rolling Stone should know better, man. This was the place where companies... The tiny baby internet and Bill Gates collided into a mashed up tech baby goop mush. That was a little much. Windows 95 originally shipped without the uh, without Internet Explorer, Microsoft's flagship internet browser, which, side note, was recently discontinued because it fucking sucked. Why wasn't it shipped back then? Because no one was on the fucking internet yet. People were just beginning to hear the screeching and beeps and squelches of distant telephone modems. What was that? They asked. It's a fucking dial-up modem, you fucking dumb shit. I can look at porno for free now, so I don't need to take any lip from you. My life is complete. Shut up! Uh, answered early tech adopters and tech-savvy shut-ins. Maybe not. Okay, maybe not that. But the word was getting out. Word of mouth spread the gospel of web surfing. The media helped Al Gore with his, I took the initiative in creating the internet. That thing that got everybody so butthurt. Well, the Vatican was online too. Everything was starting to roll along. Questions were being asked. Curiosity blossomed. Enter Bill, master of the New World Order lizard people leader, Gates, to settle everyone down. Shut the fuck up! He said from behind a comically large desk at Microsoft's headquarters. No one said anything, Bill, answered his assistant. Gah, you 
you're not tapped into the universal mind and guided by the all-seeing eye, Mike. Just wheel in a bulky laptop and start typing down every fucking word I say. I'm about to spit out some dope-ass genius speak. And you'd better catch every word of it or you're fired. We're writing a motherfucking book today. Gates received a $2.5 million advance for his book and money from subsidiary rights sales. All his proceeds were donated to encourage the use of technology and education administered through the National Foundation for the Improvement of Education, a foundation created by the National Education Association. A relationship that would make a fuck ton of money for Microsoft in the long run, but that's for a different episode. After this book was written, uh, but before it hit bookstores, Gates recognized that the internet was gaining critical mass. He had a fuck, I better get on top and surf this wave, baby, moment. Upon realizing the net was gaining enough users to snowball into this hell we currently occupy. On December 7th, 1995, just weeks after the book's release, he redirected Microsoft to become an internet-focused company. Looking back, he had, quote, vastly underestimated how important and how quickly the internet would come to prominence, unquote. Then he and co-author Reinerson spent months revising the book, making it 20,000 words longer, supposedly, and focused it on the internet. The revised edition was published in October 1996 with the subtitle, Completely Revised and Up to Date. Oy. Both editions came with a CD-ROM, which mine still has, sealed. It contains the text of the, the CD-ROM contains the text of the book and supplemental in information. And supplemental information. Fucking fuck. The hardback was published, which I have. The hardback was published by Viking. And the, I don't know why I'm proud of that being a hardback. Uh, the paperback was published by Penguin, which was an affiliate of Viking. Numerous publishers around the world produced translated versions of the book. It has since supplanted the King James Version of the Bible as the most read book in history. Bill was instantly nominated and then appointed King Ruler over all human beings, fulfilling the prophecy handed down by Lactuthu, the Lizard Allfather, who said, Quote, the time of rising will occur when the man of gates holds sway in the land of lightning and soil. Then we shall take our place as the true lords of the man-apes. Our blood shall be mixed and made divine by the hands and minds of computer nerds. Then they chanted, nerds, 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 while uh, We Are the Champions played and the credits rolled. <clears throat> I apologize again. One of Gates's co-authors, Nathan Meyervold, his fucking name is so weird, M-Y-H-R-V-O-L-D, Meyervold. Um, he's a computer scientist and Microsoft vice president who for a time oversaw Microsoft's research efforts and later co-founded Intellectual Ventures, an intellectual property company, a name that was labeled, quote, a little too on the nose, unquote, by... Writers of Obvious Things Monthly. The other co-author, Peter Reinerson, was a Pulitzer Prize winner and entrepreneur who later founded and sold an internet company and became, get this, Microsoft Vice President because of course he did. How fucking convenient. Everyone in fucking cahoots. Conspiracy. The book starts with a brief history of both Bill 
and his friendship with Paul Allen and the start of Microsoft, among other things. Which, uh, by the way, I did better because it's my show. I can pull my own dick all I want. Ah, uh, no, actually, I just skimmed. He skimmed better. But um, he also goes into a rundown of the tech that led up to the Internet software and such, which we briefly covered. He sticks mostly to the software side because it just so happens that's the side of the tech world Bill fucking plays in. He goes on to explain concepts like synchronous and asynchronous content consumption. Synchronous means you adjust to the schedule or you miss it. Asynchronous is watch it whenever you want, a la Netflix. He goes into what bits of information are and their relation to binary code, which he uh, explains in a very easy-to-understand way. My being uh, possibly a genius because I scored 1590 on my SATs. Uh, of course, I felt it to be a little condescending, rudimentary and below, elevated intellectuals. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I forgot there was bubble wrap in the package I got from Amazon earlier. I'm going to go pop it. And I'm back. Where was I? Oh, right. Bill's weird questions for the Internet. Early on, he draws a comparison to the difficulty of how we got information, quote, today. I put that. I say that because uh, he's talking about the mid 90s. Remember that today and how and how we would get our information different in the future the future meaning our today get it now just just listen to the questions bill thought people would be trying to answer using the internet uh is your bus running on time i mean that's that's a question people i mean yeah they check bus schedules and stuff sometimes schedules like that are only available on websites now which is crazy they don't even make paper copies anymore, some, play, some things. Um, another question. Does anyone want to trade his or her Thursday theater tickets for your Wednesday tickets? I immediately thought of Facebook with this. It's uh, something you throw up there. Like, hey, I have these tickets. Who wants them kind of thing? Or I have this. Does anyone else? You know, you could do that on Facebook. So, yeah, that's something that people would do. How about which store anywhere can deliver by tomorrow morning for the lowest price, a wristwatch, that takes your pulse. See, that's, yeah, I mean, WebM, well, not, maybe not, but you, you know, you search. The next question, what, what are the symptoms of a heart attack? And this got me thinking, I was, Jesus, Bill, if you're looking for a watch to check your pulse and then searching for heart attack symptoms, maybe it's time to call an ambulance instead of being on the fucking internet, you know? Because you, you could be, you're probably having a heart attack. Then there are a few questions in the book <laughs> that he does, just just questions like that. Like, where would you buy something? What's the menu of your favorite restaurant? But two of my favorites by far are, was there any interesting testimony at the county courthouse today? Like, what the fuck is going on here? Has your life become so devoid of excitement that you're down to Hey, let's check in on the sworn testimonials regarding the misery of others. Boy, oh boy, do I like some litigated suffering. My other favorite is, where were you at 9.02 p.m. last Thursday? Hey, what the fuck is going on in Bill's life when, when he got to this part? To be fair, I mean, upon reading it, I, I kind of read it two different ways. Was, was he questioning someone else? Because then, I mean, if he's questioning someone else, that's just plain old you know, paranoia or poorly executed stalking, maybe, you know. But um, the other way I read it was, is this for himself? Like, like, 
where where the fuck was I? Thursday at 9.02 p.m. Uh, internet. And why? And what, better yet, why was it written in blood on this T-shirt I found in the in the garbage can in the garage? And, and why are the questions? Why did I do it, Bill? And are you even human anymore? Written on it too. Uh, uh, on second thought, never mind internet. Just just keep uh, interneting. Just keep just keep what we talked about between you and me forever. Do we ask questions like that today? Uh, like what? Yeah, I mean we do. We check movie times, but but back then you could kind of do that already too. So he wasn't really it wasn't really much of a leap to be like, oh yes, we also just transpose that onto the internet. I mean, that's not really a prediction. It's just, of course, we would. So he was right, but there were some like those questions. It's just weird that he would think anyway. His topics regarding the future of the internet range all over, by the way, from using devices that will fit in your pocket that are roughly the size of cards or or would be the size of your wallet or something like that. He says they're small. They're small enough to fit in a wallet or something. In your pocket, definitely. Everyone would have this small internet-connected device in their pockets and keep all their photos on it and digital money access and email and such. He did describe it as being approximately the size of wallet size. So you would think smartphones. He, he fucking nailed it. And he even goes as far as to say that in a video uh, called The Road Ahead 25 Years On or something like that. I don't know. I saw it on YouTube. However, if we're getting technical, motherfucking no, Bill Gates. No, you didn't. You can't claim to have predicted smartphones when you also talk about having corded phones and phone booths with goddamn cameras in them to make video calls. Doesn't work. You can't have both. You can be like, yep, we're definitely going to have communication things in our pockets, but also phones. And then and then be like, no, I meant just all the things in your pocket would be a phone too. You don't say that. No, you don't get credit. Half credit. He does admit in the video that his idea of internet kiosks, fucking machines that would litter malls and airports and shit... Uh, that would be like vending machines that would let you, you know, send emails and search for things. Can you imagine Google on a fucking kiosk in a mall? That'd be... Anyway, that didn't pan out, obviously. Can you imagine that kind of fucking nightmare, though? Fuckheads making TikTok videos in the middle of a mall? Wait, never mind. They do that now. But on phones. <sighs> Almost a ray of sanity in an internet-insane world, but I, I spoke too soon. Malls are dying left and right, which... Bill kind of predicts, sort of. He's a capitalist business guy, after all. So when he sees the internet, he sees ka-ching, sell, sell, sell. You know as well as I that if anything, it does exactly that. Only Bill thought it would be voluntary. We would have, quote, software agents, unquote, that would feed, inf- that we would, that we would feed information to and it would curate the internet for us. It's always cute the way he saw the future of the World Wide Web. He thought of it as a tool that we would use, the same way a person uses a hammer or a dictionary or information desk. Very transactional. More user-empowered than anything else. Boy, did he miss the fucking boat on that one. He thought we would get these nifty software-generated quizzes every once in a while that would update our ever-changing tastes. Instead, we as internet denizens of today are both the prostitute and the john. We inadvertently feed information to 
merchants who then populate our feeds and whatnot with things catered to to that info that we, we inadvertently give them. The pimp in this wonky analogy is the seller, of course. Kind of like, a, hey, hey, me, you looking for a date? <laughs> sure, me, I do know a good time when I show me one. Are you selling my ass tonight? <laughs> I surely am. You know I'll do you upright because I know exactly what you like. <laughs> because I'm you. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course, me. Of course. <laughs> How much for some of my own company? Well, well, actually, I'll have to ask Google, Amazon, and Facebook. They set the prices and collect the money, you know. Of course. Of course. Of course, me. Of course, I know. Of course. Yes, something like that. Maybe a little less strange. Okay. But you get the idea. Bill's entire insight into what the future of the internet might be kind of revolves around the notion that we're in control. That everything will be a butler waiting at our beck and call to deliver our news, weather, movie times, and meals, and our locations last Thursday at the lowest price because, as he puts it, the internet will make for, quote, frictionless capitalism, unquote. Instead, it's become so, so much more and, and so much less than all of that. Kind of like a, it's kind of like a weird dystopian slip and slide with Japanese candy. I did get a kick out of his thought that advertisements would be so embedded in our online video content that, that we could pause the video that we're watching on our TV just by poking at it or I don't know, whatever, and get more information on whatever it is that was uh, happened to be on the screen at the time. His example is, <laughs> which is, by the way, very time-specific. He said, if you're watching Top Gun, and you see Tom Cruise wearing his nifty sunglasses, and you're like, hey, I want those fucking glasses. You can pause the movie on the frame, you know, on, on the on the part he's wearing it, wearing the glasses. You pause it, and, I don't know, you touch the screen or something, and boom, there's a there's info about it, like fucking colors, are, and link. there's a link to buy them. Where the fuck is that tech? I mean, kind of Google, I mean, kind of, uh, kind of YouTube ads, maybe, but they have nothing to do with the video. You can't do that in video unless someone tells, unless someone puts the link underneath. You know what I'm saying? It's like, where's the pausing and the poking? I mean, not that I, not that I buy anything I see in movies or, or videos, but I mean, Ghostbusters Proton Pack would be a nice addition to my burgeoning waste of money movie memorabilia collection. <laughs> I'd pause to buy that shit. Anyway, by the way, if you're too young to know about the movie Top Gun, it's a very 80s movie starring Tom Cruise back when he was actually young and not freakishly old and young like he is now. I think, uh, I think he was a little less crazy back then, too. So it's worth a watch after you've literally watched everything else. Speaking of which, Bill talks about his expensive-ass house, too. Quote, my goal is a house that offers entertainment and stimulates creativity in a relaxed, pleasant, welcoming atmosphere. Unquote. What the fuck does that mean? It means it'll have computer-controlled displays of various sizes that will be built into the design of the home. This is one of his predictions of how tech will be incorporated into our homes. So you got to figure it's probably 
what he did in his. Why do people attempting to predict the future always over-integrate things? They build shit into their homes. Why? A, it's going to need an upgrade one day. And B, how the hell would how the hell would you even upgrade it? I mean, using Bill's example, what do you do? Rip out old screens? You have to slap up a whole new fucking wall. Uh, what I imagine is Bill's talking about, you know, one screen sideways, one's up and down, one's like like a like people put frames of pictures on a wall. Well, what if you want to change them around? Like, what, you got to rip out everything? Or what if it's uh, screens? I mean, uh, we're moving into OLED uh, screens, which are super thin. So what, what happens when they get thinner? You got to rip all those? I'm like, what the fuck? His predictions, I mean, they don't account for fickle and non-committal uh, people when they're when they're coming up with these things, which are a lot of people. Well, well, it's like the quote standards, quote, unquote, that he goes on about. Bill believes that everything uh, eventually settles on a standard that becomes the baseline for any product. It's why he opted for less money. Remember, like I said, with the DOS and IBM. And while that's true, the thing most people use will probably become the standard of that type of thing. It doesn't mean it's always the best. When giving an example of how tech becomes standard, he brings up the QWERTY keyboard, which if you've used the keyboard in the last 70 years, it's a, it's a QWERTY keyboard. He goes on to claim that it became the standard because, quote, they work and most customers stick with those standards, unquote, which is just fucking wrong. QWERTY keyboards are inefficient as hell. They aren't intuitive and are pretty poorly designed. You need to take classes to learn how to use one properly, and even that's iffy. No, QWERTY keyboards are the standard because it's what people were forced to use. Then eventually people just gave up and gave into the trial of learning and using it. The keyboard setup that we all put up with today was made that way to sell typewriters. The Remington typewriter, with the earliest version of what would become the keyboard layout we still have today, hit the market on July 1st, 1874. An American inventor named Christopher Latham Scholes, Latham Scholes, can be blamed for it. Scholes had been for some years developing the typewriter, filing a patent by, uh, application in October 1867. An American inventor named Christopher Latham Scholes can be blamed for it. Scholes had been for some years developing the typewriter, filing a patent application in October of 1867. Although he didn't invent the typewriter itself, he did come up with a more practical version. Remington bought up his version and put it on the market. A lot of folks claim QWERTY mapping was done to alleviate typewriter jam and, and that would occur when keys were pressed that were too close together. That's, that's bullshit. His layout was to sell typewriters. How did the arrangement do that? Because when salesmen talked up typewriters, which were expensive as fuck, by the way, they talked about their version's ease of use and how much faster and more precise it was over their competitions. They demonstrated all of this by easily jabbing out the word typewriter, which all the letters for that word are all in the top row. You still can. You can still do it. Go ahead, look. They're all right there. They're mixed up so that it doesn't look fucking obvious. How fucking ridiculous would it be if a guy was like, look how easy it is to use this typewriter. I can type out the word typewriter. And then he just jabs out typewriter, which is clearly written on the top row. Who you're selling it to would be like, give me a fucking break. It's right there. Are you kidding me? 
What the fuck are you talking about? Instead, it's mixed up just enough so you don't put it together right away. And so, of course, you'd be like, oh, my God. He just cranked out typewriter out of nowhere. Son of a bitch. Give me all, give me all of them. Give me all your typewriters. But you can. You, any, any standard keyboard, you can still see that the, that the letters for typewriter are in the top row. Anyway, my point is that so many people bought it because of that gimmick. And that made that style ubiquitous. Not because of its preference, but just because it, people sold it so well. So when somebody's boss bought a new typewriter, well, of course, the keys were all fucking different than the other typewriter. So poor secretaries or whatever, whoever was typing on them would have to relearn it. And of course, if you're on it long enough, you get used to it. So then you get another you get another typewriter and you're like, oh, I need one where the keys are in the same spot. Fucking laziness kicks in and manufacturers of keyboards typewriters in this case see that laziness and they're like people are asking about this qwerty shit so we'll just start doing that so ours don't lag in sales because ours is different and then that's just how it happens people get fucking lazy and they get used to it complacency until the end of fucking time so while bill thinks everything including the internet is just a different version of quote may the best man win unquote with the customer being the ultimate judge it's more like so this is the only one that's offered at the moment? <sighs> I guess. I'll just I'll just use this one. Then they come back and say, "What's the uh I don't know. What's the same one I got last? What's what's the one I got last time?" All right, just give me another one of those again. That's it. Because at the end of the day, people aren't savvy, prudent, or engaged uh, or as engaged as Bill thinks. Another miss was his inability to see the internet devoid of gatekeepers or entities that pick and choose the best version of what someone wants in whatever category they're currently consuming content in. For instance, Gates predicted the internet would find the most accurate news story and call it from the herd of bad information. That, uh, and as we all know, that's pretty far from the fucking case. It, it's all just there. We have to decide, good or bad, he was coming from a past culture based on gatekeepers, be they editors, publishers, network executives, reporters, and much, much, much more. So it's only natural to assume that the internet would have them too at some point. Instead, it leveled the playing field and eliminated the flood controls. Now on the internet, there isn't someone to vet your credentials or pick the best from the rest. Instead, everyone is just about equal to everyone else. Well, this can be a good thing. It's also a little daunting, like this podcast, for instance. This little corner of the podcast world is a drop in an ocean of equally available, equally represented podcasts produced around the world. All of them ready to go just as much as this one is. And plus, there's not really a gatekeeper on quality. So it's up to you to wade through that ocean and find the best version of whatever it is you're looking for. Getting ahead in this environment is a lot harder without those gatekeeping controls in place and also a lot easier to be heard. It's frustrating, but it's the way of the internet. A way Bill missed. Ah, but he was pretty spot on about a lot of things. He was uh, concerned about social media bubbles, dividing people, which it does. Uh, they do. And people recording and streaming everything. He, knew, he figured that out. Global distribution of American culture at the sacrifice of local flavor. 
he got into that too. It's kind of, yeah, I get it. Nowadays, no one wants to see their identities become faded, homogenized, and forgotten. While it's concerning to think of it that way, I see it the other way. People adapt to changing culture. They incorporate, assimilate, and modify all of it very fluidly. While there might be some surface pushback to globalization and loss of cultural identity caused by the internet, the much larger global zeitgeist will embrace different ideas and cultures of all stripes. I think instead of losing a lot of it, a lot of it will just be mixed in to everything else. I mean, before the internet, communication was largely localized. News or real communication from around the world was tricky. Now it's almost instant. People can see each other more. They're already starting to be concerned with world affairs that they never were before, and they're taking it in a much more personal way. Soon, people start to see each other for what they are and what they've always been, regardless of culture or anything around them. That they're just regular people like everyone else. Same problems, same concerns. I mean, with a different language and time zone. Bill did a great job bridging the gap from his time into what was to come. Early in the life of the internet. I mean, he even alluded to a hope that the world would come together through the internet. And I agree with that notion. I think Bill just just didn't see it happening as fast. Bill and I seem to have a lot of hope for that. People coming together via the internet. And uh, getting more involved in each other. And helping each other out. Using the internet. Because we both scored a 1590 on our SATs. <laughs> High five, Bill! Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tell a friend about your podcast is at Dalton. <laughs> well, hello. That's, so why uh, does it take you a month to put it out? That's harsh. Oh shit! The everybody, let's give Don't her a, a round of. Don't drag me into your sea of lies, Elton. I didn't think I wasn't lying. Wait, lie? See, is that jazz uh, in the fucking background? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I have it playing because I'm insecure about everything. Everything. I it's. I think it's okay. No one has said anything bad about it yet. I mean, I'm starting to think maybe it's a crush. No, no, that, I, I get it. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, like I said, no, no one has said anything bad about. Jazz uh, sucks balls, Elton. Man, what's with you? It's it's uh it's jazz. I. I I think it's all right. I mean, there. I mean, it's a j- whole genre. Jazz they're, they're... straight up balls. Everyone knows that. Everyone. <laughs> balls. <laughs> that's a little. That's a little drastic. I mean, opinions vary as to whether. Uh, you know. Jazz's they... butt cheeks. You seem. You seem a little intense. Uh, like angry or something. Is is there something you want to talk to me about? I mean, should we talk about... I think about- this makes us even now. Oh. 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 Oh, you... What the... When you, when you helped out earlier with the internet voice thing? You, yeah. But, I mean... Okay. To be fair, you did use my car. Someone. I mean, someone used my car in a robbery attempt. But there were two... I think there no, was... A, no, no. I'm two not arguing holes. with they you, look like Elton. holes. I'm not arguing side. with you. Now... Now, wait. Now, now, I'm not arguing now with wait. you. All right. I don't want to argue about this either. But when you're when you're almost busted waving a loaded, I mean, not, maybe not you. You're not listening not, to not me. You. Stop. I don't know just who stop it was. Talking. What stop talking. Ki- I mean, stop and it. what stop. kind of Elton, small stop. fire just stop Cheetos? Why even hold up the place? 
<sighs> Fine. Fine. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'm serious. I'm being serious right now. Okay. No, you're being, you're being, I get it. I get it. Wait, for for my sake, what if something has to be re-recorded? All right. Cause that, that could have come out weird. Say we're even. I need to hear you say it. Uh, because would that violate what you're talking about? I don't want to, you know. Enough you of know, your uh, bullshit, Elton. Wow. Uh, wow. You're really upset. Okay. Okay. No. No. Fine. You know what? Fine. 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 We're even. Good. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that's settled. Yeah. Sure. It's settled. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, this is great. Yeah. I'm glad this is. Sure. Sure. Whatever. Yeah, for something. It's fucking, I feel terrible now. I feel kind of bad. Don't call me again. Man, okay. But, uh, look, but if you sounded like some computer-rated j- No, we're even. Okay, okay, fine, yes. But if this sounds, if if, if this turns out to sound like a computer-generated AI voice. You're a fucking idiot. Ah, damn it, you're right. If you enjoyed this episode of Elton Reads a Book a Week, please consider contributing via the podcast Patreon page or through its Anchor.fm page. Regardless, thank you for listening. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, if you can, not if you can, you, you better. Just start a book this week. Don't let them die out. Thank you.